Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers or Christian leaders of any kind who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is David Drury. David is the author of 10 books and is the chief of staff for the Wesleyan Church and is my brother and my older brother, which will be relevant data uh, soon enough in our text because our text this week is Genesis 25 verses 19 through 34, 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 34. Thank you so much for listening uh, to the show and make sure to subscribe if you aren't already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app and pass this show along on social media or otherwise so that others may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Dave. Brothers. Well, it's good. Go I, figure. I, uh, yeah, for sure. Well, you can't. Well, I mean, it, without it, it's, we got it. Yeah, exactly. It's the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But of all the ones, uh, we have almost the perfect one here. So let's have at it. <laughs> you wanna, Ready. you wanna read, and I'll say a word of prayer, and we'll jump in. Yeah, sure. That'll be great. Yeah. Let's uh, start there in verse nineteen through verse thirty-four of the chapter. 25 of Genesis. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and from Paddan, Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled together within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to him. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? 
But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's uh, say a word of prayer. Father, we ask that this word that was spoken many times heard throughout generations and written down in remembrance of the work that you were doing, both in speaking to the forefathers of your people, as well as uh, governing and guiding their history in a hidden way. And we trust that your spirit um, was at work in the lives of these people, even in all their dysfunction and vice, as well as was at work in those who told and, and wrote down the story. And that that same spirit has worked throughout the history of your people and the history of your church to keep this text preserved. And we do consider it, Lord, an honor that we would be granted the opportunity today to crack it open and reflect on it yet again. So God, we dare to ask the same spirit that was at work in these events and in the composition and preservation of this text, the very same spirit that remained on your son, Jesus, that that spirit would be at work in us, in David and myself, and in all those who are listening in across time and space, that that spirit would be at work to stir in our hearts a receptivity to the truth of your word, and would also illumine our minds uh, to what should, should and can be said and not said in our bearing of this word for the sake of others. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Yeah. So what's, uh, what's jumping out at you today as you hear this text, read this text afresh? Hmm. Well, this is just such a stark contrast between these two in the way they're presented, even from birth. (laughs) Um, you know, it, it, it's ironic because they're called twins and they're, you know, uh, biological, but not identical twins, uh, not identical in any way and almost biological antithetical twins, not <laughs> identical because it, it almost seems like everything that you would say about them, the opposite's true. The other, even, and, and even both are people of extremes, like among manly men, Esau seems even more manly. <laughs> and among the men that like to hang about the tents, <laughs> Jacob seems to be the 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 king of them. So they're almost like uh, Greek figures. They're almost like uh, demigod uh, figures archetypes. in this. Yeah. They are definitely. Uh, so uh, just I noticed that um, his whole body like a hairy garment. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that was literally true. But just the idea of a, a baby that comes out almost like a wolf is a pretty stark idea. Again, it sounds like something 
out of a Greek uh, yeah. sort of origin story. So I lo- that's what jumps out of me first. Yeah. The stuff yeah, of definitely. legends, right? And, and fitting then that there's this little poem in the middle of it, which my right. hunch would be has a longer prehistory than the, the composition of the story in its current form, you know, that it's probably a, a thing that had been said again and again, maybe even a common little poem between both Edom and, and Israel, because I'm I, I, I just dying to wonder, I mean, there'd be no evidence to know this. This is just pure speculation for ki- for kicks. But I mean, I, I wonder if Edomites had the same version, except the last line was the younger shall serve the older, <laughs> you know, because I mean, there's the explicit connection to Esau as the, the father of the Edomites who were a right. recurring competitor nation to the Israelites. I mean, we hear about the Philistines all the time, but uh, the actual nature of who the Philistines even are is kind of complicated. It's just a bunch of random cities down to the south. And, you know, like Philistia is not a place the way Edom is. You know, it's Edom's very clearly marked, although it's it also means kind of east. So in that sense, it's maybe just not that different than Philistines. But at least it's clear on the other side of the river, the other side of the Jordan, and known for the dustiness and the red, the red clay and dust that like, if you were to go take a trip to Edom and come back, you would look red, you'd have red dust on you. And so this association of redness and Edom, I I was learning about Edom from Daniel Freemeyer in another one of these episodes a couple months back in, in, in a passage on Isaiah. So I learned some new things about Edom from him. And so then th- that was all on my mind. Then this is the first time I've read the text, this passage since learning some more about Edom from him. And you know how you, you just hear a text in a new way. If you just have one, one, a couple little data points, you don't have to be an expert, just a couple new data points. And you're like, whoa, whoa, this is, this is clearly playing out the sibling rivalry of these nations. Yeah. Uh, and that's coloring the story. You know, it can't not color the story for the, those who first heard it and, and those who were transmitting it over the centuries. But yeah, you um, still got the red dust on you like a disciple. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, like Petra, the the place uh, when they, they and they have the picture. Yeah, that's they, in Edom. In the, yeah, yeah, that is, I didn't realize that till till I had that. Um, way had way that down south with. east of corner of Edom, I think, way down there. Yeah, because part of Edom is south of Judah, uh, mm-hmm. and then also east. So I didn't know it meant east as well, but you're right. I'm right, glad you brought I, up I red yeah. because red was mentioned three times in the passage Yeah, in just one passage. So it's, it's definitely. And of course, if most people thought of Edom, like you're talking about, if the readers think when they hear the word Edom, if they think red, then for them, it's more meaningful than us. Like if, if all yeah. of this was just the word red, it would be more obvious. So when he comes out red, he has red stew, right? And then, you know, yeah. with the Edom connection, it's just a lot more intentional throughout. I've never seen a lentil stew that was red, but uh, I haven't eaten a lot of lentil stews, but uh, that was a uh, very, very interesting over and over again. And I, o- I always picture his face getting red during the yes. way he's talking too. It's definitely evocative kind of language where, again, they're so different from one another. And he's kind of having a conniption about he's going to die if he doesn't eat 
it reminds me of people like when you're teenagers and you're doing sports or you're hiking or yes. you're doing something that's strenuous and you feel like you're going to die if you don't eat. It's obviously hyperbole, but you know, when you're 16 or 17 or whatever, you kind of feel that way. And uh, um, Jacob makes the most of his brothers and patients. And it has a very adolescent quality, the scene to it, the, the, the little deals that siblings Adolescent siblings, any siblings, but at those adolescent years, the way they take advantage of each other's uh, weaknesses and vices. Totally. And, yeah. Yeah. It and reminded it is, me of right, us. Like, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I remember, well, I remember one time you and I were driving. We were not driving. Our parents were driving and you are in the back seat crossing the country and you, you know, you never have enough room and we're always trying to like maybe put the seatbelt out and divide us. And I just remember that you, um, I, I traded stuff with you in order to sit on the bottom of the, do you remember this on the bottom yes, of yes. the car on the floor and faked as though it was better. And then you turned it around and traded stuff to me like tapes or whatever it was, or toys that we had in the back seat. And then you sat down there and then you were like very content. You were very cozy down there in the warm, <laughs> you know, but, well, but it was a little, I mean, obviously this is a lot more epic, but uh, yeah, I think that this is the way brothers and sisters and any siblings kind of interact with one another. But this one's at a way. I think it's interesting that um, one thing I would note is no subtext here on any of Jacob's motivations. It's all tells you a lot about Esau. It doesn't tell you a lot about Jacob. You have to kind of read between uh-huh. the lines. And clearly, if you read behind between the lines, Jacob is the most ambitious teenager ever. Like he goes for the whole birthright. He doesn't for stew. I mean, like there could not be a <laughs> higher contrast. This was a, anyone would hear that and think it was crazy. And then of course the writer is on, it's definitely on Jacob's side because the very last line is not, you know, so Jacob was quite manipulative, right? Yes, right. No, <laughs> no the last line is Esau despised his birthright. Yeah. It was more of a like, well, that serves him. Saw an Esau, uh, yeah. Sort of the ultimate, uh, you know, Jacob, you know, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Yeah, the 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 narrator's bias towards towards Jacob is clear. Although you're right, it, it's a good insight. To, it's it's told. It's it's not told from his perspective yet. If anything, there's a slight. Um, because you're getting some inside information to Esau, like what he's thinking and feeling and he has more lines and it's making comments because of, he liked this and he did that. And you only get one really character line from about Jacob, about him being like liking to hang around the tents. Um, Right. And then he obviously cooks. So he does something that's considered a more feminine task. Yeah. But uh, all in inferred, right? Nothing kind of, there's not a You're narrator right. commentary. Right it's, it's, it's now part of that is of course the, the camera is going to follow Jacob. And so his character is going to get laid out in pieces in good right. narrative. And so actually they need to do a lot of characterization work for Esau real fast because he's going to kind of fall out of the story. Good point. And so, but the redness, I, I mean, I never noticed that the stew was red, although interesting, the narrator doesn't call it, red uh esau does so you even wonder today i so i noticed the red Uh, first in in esau's statement because of because of the edom thing right so i was noticing more red today as i was preparing for our time together 
And then I know, was I was learning because I've been learning from. I, I just recorded an episode with Larissa Le- Levichva, and she was giving me some refreshers and some new tips on just Hebrew narrative. And one of the things to watch is what the narrator says versus what the characters say, and not assume that what we know is what the characters know. Only the really, except for explicit statements by the narrator of what they know, which is not common. Really, you mostly go on their dialogue. And so I, there's another layer of trickery here possible. It doesn't say, but when you said a lentil stew, I've every lentil stew I've ever seen in my entire life screen. It's not red or earthy kind of colors, whatever. Right. But the red, that's what I was thinking. I'm glad you confirmed that. Yeah. I wondered this morning because Esau maybe assumes there's meat in it. So I wonder if he didn't even get the stew he wanted. I don't know for sure, but I mean, why would he have disabused him of his, of his mistake? Like, Ooh, give me some of that red stew. And it's even maybe where where was it? Let me double check. Cooking stew. Uh, give me some of that red stuff to gulp down. And I think he might think there that he has meat to offer him. Maybe there's meat in it. Maybe there's not. The whole point is is I'm trying to like I've noticed that 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 the layers of uh, trickstery here are pretty are pretty uh, pretty impressive. <laughs> like like you said, the uh, the most what to say ambitious. Uh, I'm thinking of him. You can almost picture Jacob like one of those like really precocious kids who like wants to be president when they grow up, <laughs> and he knows how to like. Oh, if someone's made a mistake, don't uh, don't clarify it. Just exactly. He technically yeah. didn't lie, right? <laughs> yeah, here it, he's having a, a swallow of that red stuff until you mentioned it. I didn't know that Adam Edom. Yeah, Fun. yeah, I do think the Edom the. the the red stuff you just mentioned it's uh and this idea that i'm famished um it's mm-hmm. so much more dramatic than most of these kinds of stories like esau is over the top anything yeah. he does is the most extreme i'm kind of i tend to be that way they kind of do things to the yeah. limit kind of thing you know you know on or off kind of way and I mean, and he's like, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Like, uh, just, just dr- so dramatic. He's, he's, he's very, very over the top every time. Uh, the, the other thing, you mentioned the little uh, sort of poem in the middle. And that section, you know, it's, it's written like a poem. It definitely does feel like it's something maybe, uh, maybe sort of Sears would say to a woman who is pregnant with twins mm-hmm. uh, or to, you know, uh, you know, something like that. And of course they wouldn't have known they were carrying twins other than maybe a woman would be a little bit larger. Uh, but it's all, it's all crazy. There's a a very much a physicality to the whole passage. There's all this comment about what Esau looks like. They're jostling together when he comes out, he's holding his heel there's all this kind of, I mean, and it makes me think of Achilles heel, even just the very, mm. the specificity of all of it being physical stuff. The boys grow up. One's a skillful hunter. Of course, this is all setting up the later passage where Jacob again goes in and manipulates even his father about the birthright. So he's got his eyes on the prize. And of course, Rebecca is, is back there pulling some of the strings Um and, and, you know, I, the other thing it reminds me of, there's this idea of content to stay at home. If there is any criticism here of Jacob, that subtext, it reminds me of David who stays at home during the wars hmm. uh, when he has his affair with 
Bathsheba, uh, the kind of staying at home in among the tents. Um, and so it's, it's interesting thought. Uh, as far as context, there's a couple things right before this. There's the whole thought that Abraham didn't live to see these grandkids. Let me uh, pause you right there. Had, I'm sorry. Let's take a quick break and come back and get into that larger context. Just good, to good. Catch Let's that. do it. back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, David Drury, and we are looking at uh, Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through uh, verse 34, the opening uh, scene uh, of the um, story of Isaac and his sons. So right before the break, David, you were making some, uh, you were getting ready to make some comments about the larger context. Uh, Yeah. So, so Abraham did, you know, he didn't live to see his grandsons. There's this sort of precursor of Ishmael uh, and Isaac. So there's already the two sons, one that's older and the younger one, you know, becomes the, the favored one, even more extreme in the case of Isaac and Ishmael. So it's just, it seems like an important context that sets this up. And then coming out of this, of course, the whole, um, it, it, this is all set up for two passages that follow. One is, well, really three passages that follow. One is the uh, when Jacob and Esau um, actually uh, are back together again. When Jacob is fooled by Laban, he sort of is the schemer. And we kind of learn where he inherited that trait. Yeah, and that's right. from Laban, who is actually mentioned uh, um, all the way up at the top of the passage in verse 20. Uh, and then obviously, most immediately, there's the time when he tricks his own dad out of the birthright, uh, giving it to him because he talks about the hairiness from birth. So we presume that, uh, you know, that's true of, of Esau all the way through. So there's definitely that this one fits in between a lot of stuff in the narrative, even though it feels like it could have been written. Like you could almost read this about any character in any book and have it be an important passage of yeah uh, of it l- looking back and and predicting the future yeah one of my favorite things about Genesis in particular th- th- this happens in the rest of the Torah some but uh, especially in, in numbers but what's really fun in Genesis is you have it's clearly a literary unity on a whole bunch of levels that I'll comment on more in it if there's time but so so that every text fits in a larger narrative context on different levels, right? It's the whole Jacob story, larger themes in the whole Abraham story, and then the whole narrative unity of Genesis as a whole. While yet at the same time, these little stories can also totally stand alone and can be just told. They, they have great right. little narrative arcs on their own, and you can imagine them as – being able to be told and retold and carried on uh, verbally and may even have a prehistory as kind of standalone little stories, right? Even like the, the little poem in the middle, generally speaking in the history of literature, 
poetry's older than prose as a rule of thumb. It's not always that way, right? But as a general rule of thumb, you just think of like every little kid knows little nursery rhymes, right? Before they can manage larger tracks of narrative, right? And so the thought that there would be, you know, the little poem that could then also be like, well, and then you ask the parent, well, where does that come from? Oh, and you tell the longer story around right. it. And then when there's, when you really have a time to gather around the campfire, you can tell the whole, you know, maybe 10 chapter segment. And of course you'd need a whole, you know, you need a whole, you need a really long evening to do the whole book of Genesis. Right. But, uh, so you can kind of see how like they can travel alone. Like I said, you, you, you have similar, sometimes that happens in numbers. I mean, Exodus doesn't work this way, right? Exodus is very much like every story just kind of moves on to the next one. There's, there's some little, uh, episodes, right? But it's like, I think of like in TV, like when you and I were growing up, when everything was about syndication, like the episodes fit into a larger story, but they totally worked on their own too. They did both. So the big fans knew how like this one G.I. Joe episode fit into the larger story of the rise of Serpentor or whatever, right? But, <laughs> but you could also just watch the 22 episode and enjoy the action and, and it would have its own narrative arc, you know? Um, right. This has changed so much. We've, TV now has moved so far away from episodic thinking. Right. It's um, been. But pre, and preaching has in a way, because preaching has moved towards series. Everything's about series. So in some ways we've, as preachers started to move away from thinking of how does this sermon just kind of work on its own? Not completely. And, and I think this is a, Genesis is a great opportunity to play on, to kind of live in the, the flow between larger narrative and arc and a great standalone story with its own message and themes. You know, does that make right. sense what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. I, I think it's wise you, you, you equip preachers on this podcast well, and maybe wise for all preachers to think through the medium of their message uh-huh. and how scripture itself affects it. One of the things, obviously, there's two things I'm thinking of immediately when you say that. One is that the frequency of people attending church has changed, much like people streaming a show has changed the way shows are produced. The frequency of attendance at church and the means of accessing messages outside of church have changed the way people um, think of a series even, or think of preaching in general. And so I know I was around a table with a bunch of executive pastors a few years ago, and they estimated on average, an average attender was 1.5 a month attendance. The second thing I'm thinking of is right during the middle of of the coronavirus uh, shift and how that has changed the, the connection to a a preaching moment and whether or not it's tied into other things. And the fact that so many people are going to connect with that online, it feels a little more isolated, not just from space, but even time because it's online and can be accessed at any moment. And one of the parishioners in your church might share that with their grandma who might listen to it a month later. And so yes, it, it is going to affect, I think the medium does always affect the message and, and to think intentionally about that preaching through this is helpful because there's a sense in which you could preach the entire Jacob and Esau story, the, the, Jake, the Jacob narrative in particular, and it's really kind of the same story over and over again. You know, it's, it, it's less of a dramatic arc and more of like this stuff keeps happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, of course, that's a big, I think that's an open question, whether Jacob is what, what we would call a round or a flat character, right? Does he, does he undergo Mm, transformation between, and, and because you have this movement from 
the, the competition with Esau, his departure, his experience at Bethel in 28. And, and I, and I've got other people lined up to do other <laughs> weeks on right. some of these famous texts, but, and then the whole sequence with Laban kind of in the middle. And then he has another encounter with God in the, at the Jabbok that's somewhat yep. parallel to the Bethel scene, um, the wrestling scene. And, and then, and then the encounter with Esau. So there's almost a perfect kind of chiasm, although all stories kind of unfold in a natural chiasm. There, there, there's things that get started. There's the story of departure. There's what takes place while you're there. There's coming back. And on the way back is a parallel to leaving. And then the, 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 the reunion and or conflict at the end. So, and, and it's an open question in my mind. I, I've gone back and forth over the years, whether Jacob goes on an interior journey or if he's the same Jacob <laughs> the whole way through. And it's, and some of that is over determined by our own moral assumptions. We see his trickstery here as modern folk and tend to see this as morally bankrupt very quickly because in a, High context, bureaucratic society, a modern nation state. We think you got to be explicit. Contracts have to be clear and direct. Whereas the character of the trickster is often seen very positively in the ancient world. And some of these manipulation tactics would not be perceived immediately as morally bankrupt. They would be morally risky, but not bankrupt entirely the way that we might. And I wonder if our moral judgments can even make us misinterpret the story because we need to feel like Jacob learned something and became a better person. But I'm not sure. I'm not convinced he did. And I'm yeah, not even he's, convinced he's, he's a bad the, person at the beginning. That's a, that's an open question. These are all open he's, questions. He's the Loki character. Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, well, and, and, and if he is Israel, that since that becomes his name, no more single individual in the book of Genesis is therefore implicitly representative of Israel than him, then it would stand to reason that he would need to be morally ambiguous as Israel as a Israel, the people is morally ambiguous throughout the whole Bible, right? So if, if, if his story is a microcosm of the story of Israel, which in turn is a microcosm of the God's relationship with people and, you know, uh, humans, then, then, then having him just be straight good guy or bad guy ain't going to work. It's gotta be, you know, going both directions, you know? <laughs> yeah. I hear that. And the mic that, that would be heading into the preaching side of the coin, I do think that if if the, Jacob's story repeats over and over again, which I see that a little bit in this passage, it seems as the, I think he's more of a flat character the way it's presented. And I think that's underscored by the fact that you just said that he's representative of Israel, because I think Israel's story is a repeated narrative. There's, yeah. it, there's a sense in which Israel's history is flat, not round uh, in so many levels until Christ. And so, um, and even in large respect, the story of Christ is he said it himself, you know, over and over yeah. again, kept bringing up the prophets and so forth. He almost implies a flatness to the Israel narrative. So I think that it's an yeah, interesting flat character, not a flat in. narrative, right? It's ups and downs, right? Oh yeah. Big ups and, downs. The, and of course, Jacob is one of the most exciting not, characters yeah. in all of scripture. I mean, him and Joseph carry the excitement of the, of, of this book in so many ways. Yeah, well, as as my older brother, and <laughs> Uh-oh. no, this one's gonna be good. This one's gonna be good. I heard you say it again, and we always say it. I, I still say it. I caught myself doing it again. We often refer to this as the story of Jacob, and I've been 
really trying to learn something that is very new for me. And it has to do with this. I mean, I, I dropped a little Easter egg of it earlier, the, the reference to the, what the literary unity of the whole book of Genesis that uh, Sarah Dirk and a number of others have been trying to teach me. And, and there's these repeated, and there's a, there's a, there's this repeated term. I'm trying uh, let me see if I say it right. Telio. I'm not going to say it right. I, I don't know Hebrew. So why, why pretend? Um, starts with a T. Uh, <laughs> it's this word generations or, but it could also be events, narratives happening or record. It's a very weird term. Genealogy. It could be translated. It gets translated a lot of different ways. And it appears I was doing a little record keeping because it's the opening line of this passage. That's why I'm, I'm bringing this up. It's not just a kind of arbitrary thing I'm geeking out about. I mean, it is a thing I'm geeking out about and it's probably arbitrary, but, um, the opening line of the text is in verse 19. Is that is, the T-O-W-L-E-D-A-H yes, one? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, huh. uh, well, let me see if we're looking at the same word. So it's... Uh, uh, yeah, the first verse, not the records yeah, of the generation. Yes, yes, exactly. 25. So it's... Uh, yeah. Um, tol- Interesting. So yeah. that's tol- used throughout? Toledoth. Tol- Toledoth. Tol- okay. So this 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 word, some version of this word appears in let's see, eleven, twelve, uh, thirteen times in the book of Genesis, mm, um, and it is a and uh, at least eleven of which are clear markers of a new section, and this is going to be fun. So I'm going to wow. I'm going to just rattle through them. Is that cool? And it, yeah, and it starts it early, Genesis two verse four. You're this kidding. is the becoming yeah. generation account of the heavens. So I'm going to translate right. it the way that some translations matter. The story. This is the story of the heavens. Genesis 5.11. This is the book of the story of Adam or the generations of Adam. I'm going to say generations because that's going to be easier because that includes being generated, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, 2 verse 4. This is the generation of the heavens. Uh, f- chapter 5 verse 1. This is the generations of Adam. Adam. Six, verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse one. These are the generations of Shem, et cetera. Shem, MJ, and then it goes through all of them. Chapter 10, verse 32. uh, These are the genealogies of of Noah according to their nations, right? So that's kind of a, it's repeated at the end. So that's not really a new section, right? Chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. So it's still kind of going on in there. And then here's the key break, which I used to always think the key break was Genesis 12, 1. And Sarah convinced me that the, the key break is Genesis 11, verse 27, because 11, verse 27 is here are the generations of Terah, Abraham's mm. father. And from then on, the stories, as we usually name them, the story of Abraham is titled in Hebrew by his father's name. So the whole Abraham story is the story of Terah's generations, right? 25 is generations of Ismael, 25, 12, and 13, 25, 19, right here, the generations of Isaac. So the Isaac story starts now because his dad's dead. It's not him until he's the patriarch, right? Mm, It's so obvious when you think about it, you've traveled around the world, you know how... Most most of the world thinks about these kind of things. You wouldn't say that our story started until our, until our you know the word we're living out our dad's story is how they would kind of take it right and it's yeah it's you know um 
That and is then, that and then it, it marked again at 36-1 and then 37. Yeah, go ahead. No, I just think that that would be a great uh, backbone to even preach this whole passage or the, the whole book of Genesis, what you just yeah. talked about, because you, it would give you a back home, backbone that's directly in the text. It would help you know yes. where to start from. Yes. As long as you don't mention that Hebrew word, if you can't pronounce it right, like I yeah, can't, yeah, you know, yeah. I can't <laughs> it's either, great. Yeah. But it makes the generation, the, those genealogy lists, they don't, they, which feel like inserts to us. Right. Mm-hmm. And there used to be theories about these being like priest, you know, like the JDP, this, these were P, the, the genealogies, maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but however they got there, they are integral to the structure of the book as it now stands. And it means, and it really helps clarify because the Joseph story is not the Joseph story. It's the story of the sons of Jacob. That is really obvious, right? Yep. And, and it, and it really helps here for you and I as brothers, especially is to say, this is the story of Isaac's two sons to not get caught up just in the Jacob and Esau as mere uh, obstacle. Cause of course the poem, except for the last line, the poem doesn't reveal who's going to have the upper hand, right? Two nations, right? One will be stronger. One will be weaker. That actually could be Esau who's stronger. But then the second, the last line is the younger will serve the, the older will serve the younger, although for how long and in what way, unclear, right? Um, well, and I think most people would be fine with one of both of their children forming nations. That's a big deal in and of itself. That'd be a blessing, right? Exactly. No matter yeah. which one's bigger, uh, there's always a bigger fish in the sea. I think <laughs> that if you took that generation's uh, sort of prism, there's a lot of great content just about how much these sins kind of pass along generationally. Ah. Um, I was thinking you know, in a way it's not, this backs up the point you just made. It's not the bad qualities of Jacob and the bad qualities or, or conversely, just the bad qualities of Esau. It's both of them. The sparks mm-hmm. fly. There's a multiplying effect of sin. Yes. Uh, in terms of in the moment, because it's uh, Jacob's sort of scheming and Esau's sort of uh, carelessness or recklessness, uh, they bounce off each other and create this predicament, which really does create kind of nations in conflict eventually, but even their stories in conflict in the short term. But the opposite's true too, I think, and that's true today where um, there's sort of a, a multiplying effect of righteousness too. Uh, yeah. When, when good things. Uh, so that you have that scene even later on with Jacob and Esau when they're good to one another and there's mm-hmm. a blessing to one another, they sort of have that reconcil- reconciliation later on. So you could play that out there. And I mean, you, you might have to go to Exodus to even talk about the, you know, that God, uh, you know, passes on the curses for the third and fourth generation in Exodus 20 and 34, mm-hmm. 35, I forget which it is. But then he revisits the righteousness for a thousand generations. I've always yeah. loved that passage of the sense that righteousness has such a longer positive mm-hmm. effect than sin would have a negative effect. And you, you see that, you know, when Joseph is really when it starts to turn around uh, mm. in some ways, because there is a redemption there, but there you see a bit of a, like there's no redemption for Ishmael and Isaac. There's a little bit of redemption for Jacob and Esau. Yeah. There's a complete redemption with Jacob or Joseph and his brothers. So I see that, that huh. in that sense, it's not flat. Wow. There is a, a rounding to the Genesis narrative 
where you do eventually get some in those last few chapters that, oh, wow, this, this story ended up better than we thought until you read Exodus. And then you realize it went south a little bit after that. Although the unity of the, in terms of the question that you are narrating, which is the, the sort of sibling rivalry problem. True. That, that is mostly resolved at the end of Genesis. It really doesn't break out again until, until judges really. True. Um, they're working as a team throughout the rest of the Torah, the 12. So in a way, and of course, I, Moses it's a, it's, and Aaron it's a are a great example of brothers working together. They don't seem to ever be in conflict. Yeah even though they grew up so differently. So there's they're, they're one sort of little a, moment. There's one little moment in numbers. Like I said, numbers has these random stories that, that kind of, you almost, you almost wonder, it's kind of like, oh, this is where they put the stories that didn't fit into the Exodus sequence. You know, it's like, the <laughs> numbers is the director's cut of, totally. of Exodus. It's the it's, Exodus director's the, cut. It's perfect. Yeah. The director's <laughs> commentary, you know, the, the, yeah, the priest didn't let me put this in Exodus. That's perfect. That's going to be my view until I do another app with a with a like legit OT scholar who will then school me on my and show me the literary unity of numbers because this is totally what I was saying like to Sarah a couple months ago when we were doing something on Genesis when I was kind of referring to like yeah Genesis one through eleven is like the you know the Silmarillion and Genesis twelve through fifty <laughs> is the Hobbit. Right. And then Exodus through Deuteronomy is Lord of the Rings. Right. So that's like the main story is the Exodus story. But then you have to kind of know the little like very human story that precedes it. And then the kind of cosmic story before that. And that's when she introduced to me this concept of the, the generations the as actual. the structure. And so I went and studied that's that. too bad. Cause I really like your, I know Well, I, they're not mutually. Exclusive. Her scholarship has ruined our story. Well, it's not mutually exclusive, of course, uh, because that's <laughs> oh, good, also good. A, Well, yeah, that'd be even right. better. The best kind of scholarship is the one that reinforces my narrative. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it complicates it. Maybe it doesn't reinforce it, but it doesn't completely destroy it, right? Excellent. Yeah, but the thought of thinking of this story as – because Isaac's really passive in the story here. And even just to see it as the story of Isaac, which is how um, – I've got a Tanakh, so this is like a Hebrew, a, a, a Jewish Bible, right? So it's just old, quote unquote, Old Testament. And there's just translation choices that most, you know, English speaking Christians wouldn't think to make, you know? Um, and it just opens verse 19. This is the story of Isaac. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, to be like struck by like, man, he's just kind of this, all this stuff's just happening to him. My compassion for right. Isaac kind of went up a mm-hmm. little and your point is really good about it's it's their strengths coming right. together that even generate the tension, you right. know, even though also that eventually. And they're extremes. They're people of extremes. I, I think you could, that's one way to preach this passage is to talk about the continuum, continuum of mm. these two very extreme persons. And uh, over time, of course, those strengths usually end up rounding off and, Perhaps there's a development of Jacob. There definitely is of Esau. Esau doesn't seem to be the same person later on. Uh, yeah. He seems to be very calm and 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 gracious kind of a person, uh, and and seems to be a very you know they are both nations by the end of their lives. Uh, that's the yeah. the great thing about it is the the, the that's doing another way that I, th- I I think you could actually tackle this passage is going with the struggle um, metaphor. Because they're mm. jostling in the room. There's a couple different words I think that are used. I don't know them, but the struggles in the room, and then Jacob kind of struggles in the shadow of his brother. They both struggle because 
one of them's in the shadow of his brother for the mom and the other one's in the shadow of his brother for the dad. So there's the favoritism. Then, you know, Jacob struggles later on with his father-in-law. He struggles with fear when he goes to see his brother, you know, and, and he's worried about what Esau is going to do to him. And then, of course, the struggle with God part. So I think, you you know, I mean, people even use that in the vernacular these days, like, I'm in the struggle. And I just mm-hmm. thought he has a, he's a struggler. Yeah. And it, what's fun is to see it again, to riff off the notion of whose story is this, to have it be this plural verb here in verse 22, right? They struggled. The, the, the struggle of Esau with Jacob, the struggle of Jacob with Esau and how this struggle is taking place inside of Rebecca which means she's experiencing it, feeling it, right? Physically. Right. That's the the the, the physicalness of it, as you mentioned before, right? Um, yeah. You could even talk the struggle of favoritism because it's really favoritism. It's four ways. It's it's all four of them. All main characters yep. have a favoritism going on. And so if I'm in the role of, of Isaac, you know, how does my favoritism, you know, and people that I, you know, my inclination to read into things like he preferred to be among the tents and, and well, what is that in me? What is that <laughs> struggle in me that prefers that? Or, or my tendency to think of somebody that just hunts all day. Esau sort of the first redneck, literally, yeah. of scripture, um, you know, to kind of see him that way. What would that be in me if I'm having more of a Rebecca kind of a favoritism and then the other way around the both of the children. So yeah, you could go a struggle and it's a four way narrative of struggle. Yeah. And Jacob as a kind of softy and how he is sort of relying on his wits to, uh, because he's athletically inferior <laughs> to his, I mean, exactly. it's just so, it's so, it's so familiar. Um, it, it's so true to their time, but also it's just kind of true to the way family systems play out. No, that's, that's really good. And, and yeah. <laughs> Which is all echoed, of course, in the family of Laban. So it's, this is not, uh, you know, isolated. You've got the same thing going on uh, in that family with the two sisters and the one that can't get married off and gets sort of hidden in order to get a husband. And then, and then they have their tension uh, going forward. So it's, it's, it's very much underscored. Uh, the struggle, but we all have that. Even if it's not a family narrative, of course we have in our workplaces, we struggle mm-hmm. with people we favor or don't favor. We struggle in our culture with groups we favor or don't favor. Yes. And so there's a sense in which we all have an inner struggle of favoritism. You might even call it bias. We all have confirmation bias, especially yep. any scholars that might confirm our Lord of the Rings theory of Genesis. That would be a great one. <laughs> but we all have confirmation bias. We all have a sense of the things, the way we see the world. And how do you deal with that and making sure you don't paint people into a corner, put them in a box. No, that's really good. I think that set us really well for our third section. Let's take a quick break and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm your host, John Drury, and I'm here with David Drury. And we're looking at Genesis uh, chapter uh, 25 verses, uh, 19 through 34. And we already started talking sermons a little bit, but, uh, now be a, and, uh, we only have a, f- a few minutes left, but maybe we can, uh, 
sort of hone it in. Where where would you want to focus, Dave, if we were gonna if you were gonna be preaching on this text, uh, maybe as part of a series, maybe as a standalone? It's up to you. Um, how might you, how might you bring shape and focus to a sermon on this text? What uh, what suggestions might you have? Yeah, so I I definitely feel like if it's gonna, it depends on if it's a standalone or if it's or if it's with a series. If it's with a series, I think it would definitely need to fit in with the rest of the narrative. So, if you're going with a series to talk about the struggle of these characters, like we were just talking about, then I think you just want to hone in on the struggle that's happening here uh, and the extreme examples of the two of them. I, I just. The, the scene setting is so powerful when his brother comes in from the hunt and he's famished mm-hmm. and he is making the stew. It's just two archetypes that you mentioned that, that they're so extreme for one another. It's just easy to do the storytelling. And so, um, and then even to tell your own stories, most of us have our own story that almost any preacher could start with. It's a great sermon illustration to start with when you felt, like a misfit, like that you were very different from somebody else that is way different than you in an extreme way. Some of us have that in our own families, but almost all of us have it in some way in our lifetimes. And so that'd be a great way to start to enter into it and then to put yourselves in the shoes of both Jacob and Esau. If it's, if it's standing alone, I think you might have to really hone in on, I mean, I, I myself might hone in on the, the kind of multiplying effect of both of them having these extreme personalities and inclinations and how it kind of creates this conflict, even when they're young people. Um, I think we all have had those times when, you know, even something you do when you're 16 or 17 uh, has impact for your whole life. Uh, and in a way, uh, it's the birth narrative and the little poem is the prediction of it, but it's the stew narrative. It's the Mm -hmm. stew story that actually starts the subsequent events. Uh, And sort of uh, uh, it's, it's sort of the foreshadowing of the whole life. Both of them will lead. Yeah, you're right. There really are kind of two, two distinct stories, a classic case of, I mean, it's only short couple verses, but it's spanning 15 years, you know, a lot of time passes in this quick story. And like you said, you could do a little setup, but then really zooming in on, on 27 through 34, because it's just so perfect in the, the, uh, yeah, it's funny. Like, I, I wonder if you could do a sermon. It's, it would be very difficult, but it might be possible to, to talk about the extremes of the characters of our tendency, uh, you know, our, how our how our weaknesses are the shadows of our strengths, as it were, right? Um, and you see that in these two men. But then also this problem of favoritism. It'd be really hard to... T- I, I'm trying to think... I, here's the kind of like little homiletical puzzle I'm presenting to you that maybe you could help me with. Is like, is there a way to kind of like do a teaching that would be able to hit basically hit it from the four characters from all perspectives or the two pairs. Because I was thinking earlier, even when we were talking about the favoritism and the extremes, how there's an extremity of character in them and and an antithesis of character and how that's getting sort of reinforced and exacerbated by the favoritism. Right. Right. Because I mean, maybe, maybe Esau likes hunting, 
but I'm sure he really enjoys his father's approval. And, and, and to know which one is the motivator is almost right. gets lost because it becomes it a, does, inf- yeah. a loop. Same with then Rebecca. And it makes and, sense. It's both, they're born with it quite literally in the passage yes. and it's a part of who they are into adulthood and, and, you know, whether it's nature or nurture, it's kind of yeah. uh, like most of those questions, they usually end up being like, yeah, both. I've never heard anybody ask is it nature or nurture that doesn't end up saying a little of both. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of both. <laughs> yeah. I think you uh, could do that, John. You could yeah. draw like a little box uh, yes. or even four quadrants and put the four characters in. And, uh, you know, who did this most masterfully in any book I've ever seen is Henry Nouwen's book, A Return of the Prodigal Son where yeah. he puts you in the shoes of the prodigal and then the shoes of the elder brother and then the shoes of the father. And, um, and you could almost do that with these four characters. I've never seen anybody do it. Uh, but, and then what would it be would helpful flow pretty naturally to, as a sermon. Yeah. Though, Cause it'd be four parts. What you could do yeah. is talk about, yeah, because this is one of the few passages where you have all four of them in the passage. Yes. So you get um, all the triangles. <laughs> exactly. Of a family and what you could do is say, how does each person view the other? So put yourself in Isaac's shoes and say, how does he view Esau? How does he view, uh, how does he view Jacob? And then, then the part we never read is how does he view Rebecca? Yeah. And then vice versa, you do it for Rebecca, you could do it for each of them. And I think that would be helpful because of course the way Esau views Jacob and the way Isaac views Jacob have similarities, but differences because their roles are different. Yeah. And it would be and it'd be a real natural kind of sermon where you can kind of give people a little bit of a buy on some of the sermon, but kind of say, my hunch is everyone here has something to learn from at least one of these characters. Yeah, that's good. Right? That's a great way and, to sneak in conviction. Yeah, but then you can also say, <laughs> you say some of the it's well, the Ten Commandments are, you know, if there's ten of these, you might not have done all of them, but you've probably done one. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure commandments work that way. <laughs> Really? Bummer. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> but narratives definitely can, right? Because some some characters just click with others more, you know? And 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 I think, uh, yeah, I'm playing on some of the tendency to stereotype there. And it's very interesting how you said, I still think you're opening spot on, how you feel like a misfit in your family. And the fun twist is to say that all four of these characters felt like the misfit in their own way. Ooh, that's good. Right? So, like, right. so... Jacob is not like a, he's not a real man, right? That's Jacob. He, yep. He's going to have that kind of beta male dynamic. Um, Esau is not completely unaware that there is an important history of the election of the younger already at play, right? That story, it's not like he doesn't, he hasn't heard his dad say a million times that God chose him over his older brother, Ishmael. <laughs> come on right um and yeah. so he's aware of that all ready from the beginning and he can just tell that his mom and his brother are just smarter than him they just are he knows that and he's making up for it with this <laughs> but and then the father i mean then you know rebecca definitely feels like her real home and identity is still back up in heron right she's an outsider to this world to this desert world that she's living in down south she's from up north she's from another place how quickly she recommends her son to go run there indicates her her sense of connection back home to her brother laban and everything and then and then isaac's kind of how passive he is perhaps demonstrates a kind of sense that he doesn't really feel he lived in the shadow of this huge person abraham right and 
And already all of the, the energy and excitement and tension and friction in the family has moved to, has skipped a generation and it's all about his two sons and their competition. And he's kind of forgotten. We don't know a lot about Isaac. He's not a very, you know, he's not a very, uh, filled out character in Genesis. So he might feel a little like, I'm not really leading or this family. <laughs> I'm the odd one out here. I don't know. I just wanted to build on your opening insight that when you feel like a misfit and then the possibility that you could be in a family or, you know, an entire family of misfits. I don't know. I think that might sort of work. <laughs> yeah. Tie it in. That's a great way. And as I always try to tell myself, how can I help people relate to these characters and see that they have, that they have similar motivations in life that they have. The, the reality is, is every preacher has to not just exegete, exegete scripture they have to kind of exegete kind of human tendencies uh, and motivations. And if you can get at the motive, it's the same way that a fiction author that's done a really good job or, or even a, a director of a movie helps you realize, oh, person A wants this from person B. Um, scripture itself does that a good deal, but a preacher has the job of helping the listener in the pew or in these days behind a camera, uh, or I should say in front of a laptop or somewhere mm-hmm. sometimes to try to f- help them feel like, Oh, I have similar motivations in my yeah. life. That's that, so temptations, for instance, are just motivations. It's just a, a, under yeah. the word motive is all these things like temptations, even the motive behind righteousness or spiritual yes. disciplines or good things I can do. It's all back to motive. And, and it's all about understanding human motive to start with how scripture has human motives. These four characters, I'm glad you're bringing that up could be the place you start on motive in the text and then get to the place of how do you deal with your own motive? And I think that's where, yes. um, that's where I do think we have to make some value judgments on, yes. you know, who am I? So for instance, my accountability partner has asked me for more than a decade, the question, Dave, who are you manipulating? Huh. Now, nobody has that on their lists of questions. That's not on Wesley's lists for societies yeah. to ask, but I need to be asked that because I have some Jacob tendencies to manipulate other people. And instead I need to influence them, not for my good, which is manipulation, but for their good, which is leadership. Mm-hmm. So that kind of distinction is the kind of journey you can go on as a preacher to help people get to the motive of the people in scripture and then help unpack their own motives so that they, uh, they have a rounding towards righteousness. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm in favor of, of uh, moral uh, judgments of the characters, as long as they're evenly spread among them all. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's close it out with this. What, what are the four, uh, what are the four questions Want the Jacob question for all for us is who are you manipulating? Confess, nice. be honest. And how about Esau? What's the question there? Um, uh, how are what, you what, being what, reckless? Are you? Yeah. What? what it, you know? What are you missing? What, is what are you trading stew? away? <laughs> what are you yeah. trading? What are you trading what are you trading away? Trading for a for a stew. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So who are you, Jacob? Who are you manipulating? for the Esau in your heart. Uh, what are you um, trading away? Maybe what are you trading away? What are you? Yeah. What are you careless about? Reckless about? Um, or you can flip it around. What are you, what are you, what are you hungry for? Uh, right. What are you willing to trade too much away for? Right? What are you recklessly hungry for? 
Yeah. That could yeah, be part of, part of it. Yeah. yeah. Although I do think that what he's trading away is the most important thing. With uh, Isaac, it's kind of... Who are you ignoring? <laughs> yeah, who are you ignoring? That's perfect. <laughs> and of course, don't... later on, he's actually blind, literally. Yeah, so it fits the character then, right? It does. It does. And then Rebecca, Rebecca, of course, also... Yeah. So what, what I see in Rebecca is she gets this promise, and this is a, this is a standard trope in literature, even modern literature that'll have this, where you get a prophecy and then you start to try to fulfill it. Yeah. And that's what like I the see. The matrix. Yeah. You know. So what are you, you know, what, what outcome are you, you know, trying to cause? It's like manipulation, but it's different. I don't have the exact uh, question for, maybe it's because we're um, two dudes commenting on a female character, but I think it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to, you know, do, do the motivation question super well for her. But um, I, I, I think one thing she's definitely contributing to is what, what, what curses are you propagating or what oh, curses are you passing down? Because it's a, there's a bit of a curse in the, in the poem. Uh, and, and that could lead you into that whole, yeah. uh, which it's back to the point you made earlier of how each of these people have these characteristics, but how much did their parents push them even farther yeah. that direction? And we all do that in families. Like, Oh, you're, we've both talked about that. Like where yes. you, you're like, you know, I, I was always told by our parents, you know, that, that I was the funny one, right. Quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And you were oftentimes told that you're the smart one. Right. But I'm smart too. Yeah. (laughs) And you're funny too. Right. And that's not that they didn't tell (laughs) me that I was stupid or that you, that you weren't funny. We inferred it. Yeah, exactly. And so we do that in families and we do that in life. So that could be helpful of how do we make sure we don't push people toward the extremes and towards uh, sin. pushing. Yeah. Pushing towards, uh, yeah. Stereotyping labeling. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, great. Thanks so much for the time you've spent. I know you need to go and I'll let you go and I'll say a big thanks to all our listeners as always. Thanks to Todd and Eric for the production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks for Tom and the music that he provides. And, uh, with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>